I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Lord, we ask for your spirit once again to fill us and to illuminate to us what your word is teaching us. Especially a passage like this, which is, at least in our modern hearing, quite controversial, archaic, and some would even call wrong. But Lord, it's not wrong because it's in your word and you intend for us to understand something out of this. And so for each and every one of us here that are gathered to hear this sermon, Lord, we ask and pray that you would help us to hear your words, not the mere words of a man or not the mere words of uh, tradition, but instead what your word actually teaches us. We pray that you would give us insight and leading and guiding so that we might know you better and love you more. Lord, we pray that if there is a feeling of offense and a whiff of discouragement by this passage, we pray that you would help us, all of us, to work through it and to believe what your word says and trust you knowing that you are good and faithful and this is your church, it's not ours. We thank you and we love you for your grace and mercy. In your name, amen. As a Bible-believing Christian, or I could say perhaps another way, as a person who calls myself a Christian, I believe that I should follow what Christ laid down for me to believe and for me to follow in the context of his church. He says, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, actually Fred's going to preach on this, It says in verse 15 of the next chapter, If I delay, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's writing important instruction to Timothy, so that as Timothy has come from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, he's first of all, remember, supposed to ordain men, But he's also supposed to contradict false teaching. And then as he's contradicting false teaching, 
He's giving right teaching and right and proper instruction. It tells me there was quite a bit of confusion going on there in the church of Ephesus. Rightly so. It was one of the main churches that existed in that day and age. It probably had a large population and so was very influential. And places of influence are places where false teachers want to infiltrate so that they can have a position of influence and spread their error and spread their heresy. But one thing to point out in verse 15 that we just looked at is one how to, so that one should know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This is God's church. It is God's organization. It is God's structure. And he has every right to do with it whatever he wants to do with it. Much like the rest of creation. <laughs> Much like the rest of everything that exists. But particularly so in the context of the church. Because these are the people whom he has redeemed from their rebellion against him. From their sin. From their transgression. From their error and disobedience against him. He has saved them. He's redeemed them. He has called them his own. He has caused them to be born again. He has put them in a new position. He's placed them within his church. And so therefore, when he instructs us how to behave and how to live in the place that he created for us to be, it behooves us to pay special attention and to follow what he says and to do it accurately and rightly. Now, the reason why I start there is because in this particular passage, there is much controversy. You can hear it, right? I mean, I'm sure even as I'm reading the text before I pray, that there's that little back of your neck kind of like, really? This is, ah, we're going here? (laughs) This is tonight? I get that. I get that. Yes, it is. And we're going to go through this and hopefully at the end there will be clarity. Hopefully at the end there will be purpose and understanding so that as we go forward and we learn the rest of the nuts and bolts, how the church is structured with elders and deacons and so forth and how it's to be ordered, that this will make perfect sense as we go forward. That's our goal. That's our hope. First of all, verse 8. I desire then... Okay, so that means he's referring back to something he's already previously brought up, right? And I think verse 2 is the context. Well, back up to verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly life, and dignified in every way. So he's referring back to that concept as he picks up praying once again. He says, I desire then, because we as a church, we as an organization, we as people who love the Lord Jesus have been called together to worship in one place at one time, desire to live peaceful, quiet, godly lives dignified in every way. 
And so in light of that, what should men do? He begins with men. What's our responsibility? First of all, and I think foremost of all, for all men. Now there's going to be a distinction when he gets to elders and deacons for different kinds of men who have been called to a different status, a different um, position within his church, a different ordination. But this is for all us men. For every single one of us, this applies to us. That we should pray. That should be the most controversial phrase in the entire passage. Not the stuff down further about women. Because I know you men. And I know me as a man. And I would not call myself a man of prayer. I would say I am a guy who tries to that. I'm a guy who strives for that. I am a person who wants to pray regularly and routinely and accurately. And if you are anything like me, and I know you are, that that causes you to cringe as well deep down. Are you a man of prayer? We should be. We should be people who are regular men of prayer. And that might mean we need to set aside special and specific times where we are not distracted, where we are not encumbered by phones and emails or kids or demands throughout the day where we can get alone and pray. It should be our regular routine habit. I do, I come here an hour early so that I can pray. Sometimes I come earlier so I can pray before the sermon because I want the sermon that I preach to be bathed in prayer. And I'm praying throughout for, all, for it throughout all the week as well. And I'm praying for each and every one of you throughout the week as well, by name specifically. And if I know specific things that are going on, specifically praying for them. But in the context of the church service here, do you find yourself and your thoughts being distracted and going to other places and to other things? He says here that we ought to pray. And the context here, I think, is arguably corporate worship. Praying, lifting up holy hands. Now, we certainly can do that. I am not opposed to it at all. In some of the songs that we sing, I raise my hands and because they're prayers to the Lord, the songs that we sing oftentimes. And we certainly have every biblical right and every biblical case to lift up our hands and pray to the Lord our God. In Psalm 40, in verse 20, there's a passage where the psalmist says, I have a pure heart because I have not lifted my hands up to a foreign God. It doesn't mean you you understand what he's saying. I have not been praying to idols, but instead I have been lifting my hands up to the true living God. It's a position of humility, right? Especially in our culture, there's a little bit of embarrassment sometimes when lifting your hands up. There's always that moment where you're like, just going to do it. (laughs) And you lift your hands up and you pray. There's a humility to that. I'm acknowledging there is someone greater than me. I am worshiping him. I'm giving him praise. I'm exalting, not just with my voice, but with my body. I'm standing in a position that I don't normally stand in because of the God I'm in the presence of. 
And so we lift up our hands and we should do so without anger or quarreling. Why in the world is that there? Well, because we're guys. Because we're men. (laughs) And we are prone to anger and we are prone to quarreling. Paul is no fool. He was prone to it himself. James has a lengthy portion of chapter 4 in his epistle just on this issue. Why are there fights? Why are there quarrelings among you? Ah, there you go. Why? (laughs) Why are there fights? Why are there quarrelings among you? It's because you are focused on yourselves. You are coveting. You're lusting after other people's things, other people's positions, and you shouldn't be doing that. Instead, you don't have because you don't ask. James goes back and focuses those men on prayer. Pray. You won't pray. Don't anger and quarrel amongst yourselves. We, because, here's the thing, anger, quarrel, strife brings disorder to the body of Christ brings disorder to the church. And what did we just read in chapter 2, verse 2? We're supposed to be peaceable people, right? People who are living at peace. Well, we're not striving for peace with the world out there so we can come on here and fight amongst ourselves. No, we want peace out there in the world so that when we gather together and worship, we're coming together with our sweetest and most dearest friends. And if we have disagreements, I have no problem side by side, standing with you, lifting holy hands, worshiping the very same God you do, praising God Almighty. There's that passage Jesus teaches there back in the uh, Gospel of Matthew where he says, if you come in and you come to worship, And you remember that a brother has something against you. Leave your gift, stop worshiping, and go make things right with that brother. Then come back and offer worship. Because acceptable worship is not made in the context of division and disunity in the body of Christ. It's important that we take care of these things and take care of these matters. Take care of these issues. When you have something against somebody, go to them and repent. Ask for their forgiveness. Make sure that you understand what it is that brought it up and then repent and do your best not to do it again if you do. Trust the Lord that there'll be reconciliation again down the road. So that's the men. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay. First of all, it's very important that we don't read our 21st century sensibilities back into the Bible and try to impose a 21st century understanding of the world and the way things are back into the text of Scripture. That's called anachronistic. And oftentimes it's done just with history. We look back on history and we say, oh, how could those people have been so stupid to do A, B, or C, or whatever it is? 
How could they have been so naive? How could they have been so backwards? How could they have been so foolish? Well, it's very easy for us to sit here on the top of our 21st century pedestal and look back down and cast stones at people who built the thing up to where we're at right now. You haven't arrived and I haven't arrived. And I know that there are people who are wiser and godlier than me. And so it's unwise for me to force my sensibilities upon them when they try to speak to me some words of wisdom. And this is what we need to make sure that we do when we come to a text like this in Scripture. That we don't try to think, well, this clearly can't still be true because that's just not how the world is today. We have to go back to the same thing that we started when we began this. This is God's church. He's ordering it. He's telling us how he desires for us to live in the household of God. So what is this saying here? Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Now, people are people. In the Roman days, you can... Look back. Uh, You guys will see it when you go to Pompeii. (laughs) If you ever get a chance to go to Italy, you'll see some of the expressions of people back in the biblical times were not so far removed sexually and promiscuously from our day and age. In fact, people have always been people and people have always burned with passions and people have always gone out of their way to show off an ostentatious display of either how they are sexually or perhaps with what they own, which is what we're going to see here. But in one way, shape or form, displaying themselves as being greater than they really are. Right? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And that's the word here. This is what this is getting at. Coming into the church with modesty, apparel, and modest dress, and a modest apparel is simply an understanding that I don't want to distract everyone else around me. I'm here to worship and give glory to God, to honor God. And to praise him. So I'm not going to adore myself, adore, adorn myself in a manner that is going to draw attention away from men who should be praying and lifting up holy hands. Now, I, I, I've seen it. I've been in plenty of churches where, you know, you're standing there and uh, someone is dressed inappropriately. In fact, I've seen it up front with somebody who is singing and supposedly leading in worship. And it's clearly distracting and clearly something that was causing a problem. Now, does this mean that, <clears throat> well, let me go on a little further. Not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. It's apostle against braided hair? <laughs> well, this is where a little bit of history comes in and a little bit of history helps us understand exactly what's going on here. So there are ways means you guys see this i'm not going to provide illustrations where people can cut their hair and they are saying something they are indicating something by the way their hair is done and here specifically with gold or pearls or costly attire one of the things that we have found historically is that women in that day would spend a lot of time braiding their hair with things that were of worth and value 
Rather than necklaces and rings and bling, what we would call it, they would have it in their hair and braided all for everyone to see. And it was an ostentatious display of wealth. I am wealthier than you. Check my hair out. Now, there are some churches, there are some holiness churches that will take a passage like this. And 1 Peter 3, we'll look at that in a second. 1 Peter 3, and say, well, you shouldn't adorn yourself so they don't wear makeup, they wear absolutely no jewelry, they won't cut their hair, they'll grow their hair super long. You probably see them if you go out to eat on a Sunday afternoon somewhere on that side of town, because there's a couple of them over there. (laughs) But if you go and you see them, what you'll find is, yes, they have long hair, but it is done up. And it is big and it is up there. And you can tell, even in a church like that, they don't have to have all of that in order to still display their pecking order and still display who is more spiritual or holier or whatever, it want, whatever you want to throw in there. So when the church, what we need to do is we need to be careful because just because we don't do the literal words that it says, we can still fall into the same overarching problem that Paul's trying to address here. And that is distracting from the worship service that's taking place. So, 1 Peter, I said we'd look at that. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then he goes on from there, and you're, I encourage you to read it at your own, um, on your own. But right here, We see the goal of corporate worship is that our heart might be one that's gentle, quiet, and very precious in God's sight. That I'm not living in a manner where I am comparing myself to other people, where women aren't comparing themselves to other people, where they aren't looking to one-up one another and that kind of thing. But what are we looking for? We're looking for godliness with good works, right? That's what he's talking about here. Let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. Now, you've seen that bumper sticker around that says, silent women rarely make history or something like that. You know that one that's out there, right? Well, as we move on here, there's lots of women in the New Testament. And this is where we need to be careful that we don't become anachronistic. As we move forward with what does it mean here, like verse 11 says, to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, there's very few passages in the New Testament that ring more against the grain of modern sensibilities than that verse 11 right there. Let me read it again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
Right? That's what it says. It's, there's no tap dancing around it. I know there's plenty of people out there who will say, and I've read the commentaries, and one I read just said, oh, well, we know this doesn't have anything to do with today's church, and just went right on and didn't say a word about any of the stuff. One was just, he was falling all over himself trying to qualify it. He wanted to say what it said, but then at the same time, he was like, I don't want to offend anybody. Look, I don't want to offend anybody either, but my task as the pastor is to preach the word of God, not what I think the word of God maybe ought to be. Fair enough? So what does this mean here? Now, here's the problem with the context that we don't have. We don't have women sitting on this side of the church and men sitting on this side. You know, that was an early church thing, right? Because they came out of the synagogue. And in the synagogue, that's typically what happened. Women would sit on one side and men would sit on another. Now, if you think, if you grow up with that, you're going to have an understanding of the way things are. You're going to have an understanding of all of the Bible texts. So there's not going to be a reason for you to ask questions in the middle of a church service. But if you become a Christian and all of a sudden you're learning all of these new things and Andy's sitting on one side of the room and I'm on the other and Andy says, hey, what does that have to do with this? And she's like asking me a question about what's being said. You can imagine the chaos that that would, ens- that would ensue. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he also addresses women in the context of the church. There, he talks about the order of service, and they had it differently, whereas they would have a guy preach, but they would also have people get up and say certain things. They would have a song, and in that context, it was very early church, so people still might have spoken in tongues, and it's still prophesied and these kind of things within the context of the church. And what the elders would do, it says there in that context, is they would sit and listen to the things that were being said, discern if they were biblical or not, and they're right on the spot say, yeah, that's biblical, yeah, that's not. That's a whole different way of doing church. But at the same time, what they were doing there is they were taking people from all of these different contexts, giving them the opportunity to speak, and as they were speaking, the elders were able to correct things and discern things and this and that. And what his point there is, is that as women are sitting and listening to this particular stuff going on, that they're to listen Hear what it says, and especially in 1 Corinthians, it's a little more clear. Ask questions later on. But let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, why would this be so? Verse 12 says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? Why, 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 why in the world would Paul say this? Right? That's the question that we all have. Well, good thing Paul answers it in verse 13. 14, he answers it as well. Four, here's the reason why. Now, let me back up a minute. Now, let me read this a minute. Let me read this first, and then we'll back up to verse 12. Four, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
So he says, here's why he's saying the things that he does. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, whenever we're studying our Bibles, whenever we're reading the text, and we come to a principle that comes from creation, it is therefore something that applies to all people everywhere at all time. It's not cultural. It's not something that we can say, oh, well, this only applied to Ephesus because certain things were going on there. Or this only applied to Corinth because certain things were going on there. No, if it refers back to creation, then it is universal. All churches everywhere at all times. Now, what does he say about this creation principle? Adam was formed first and then Eve. So his first point for why this is, is just simply God did it that way. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve. Now, when you look at Ephesians, which is the church that Timothy's in there, in chapter 5, there's this famous passage, right, that talks about marriages and talks about um, husbands and wives. And it begins famously with, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Again, another passage that is difficult in our modern culture. But it's clear what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their own husbands and everything. Now, I am not trying to open a can of worms. We can certainly answer questions about this and you can ask me whatever you like after the fact because there's all kinds of issues that this brings up. What do you do in this situation? What about this situation? What if the husband's being this way? What if this is going on in the house? All those are valid and totally understand and they can and should be addressed. But there's so many nuance that it's very difficult to say right now, categorically, here's how every situation can be handled. There's a couple we can. If there's physical abuse going on, of course the wife shouldn't stay and just submit to that kind of thing. In fact, that would be something that Brian and I would go and physically get involved with if we had to. I'd have no problem going over to some guy's house who was treating his wife like that and removing her from the house taking her to somewhere where she can be safe and taking care of business however I need to with the guy. I think that that's clear and I think that that's a way that a pastor should be protecting his church and should be dealing with people in his church. The same thing's true for sexual abuse. That needs to be addressed immediately without prejudice as quickly and as harshly as it absolutely can be. They shouldn't stay in that kind of situation think that we can make a clear biblical case from 1 Corinthians that that should absolutely be handled immediately and quickly, aggressively, okay? So for sure, there's situations. So when he says here, wives should submit to their husbands in everything, the context is Christian, Bible-believing, loving their wives, husbands, right? 
That's the, what he's talking about here. Good Bible-believing Christians. So he goes on and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor or spot without any such blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. And then he goes on from there. And that's good. Read, read the rest of that context as well. But the important thing here is he's talking about, here's the created order once again, right? We can go back to the very beginning and see that husbands should leave their, pardon me, husbands, wives should leave their families and cleave to their husbands. From the very beginning, it was so. It was from Adam and Eve were called to do that. So Adam was formed first, then Eve. It was the way God had originally ordained it. And if he ordained that was to be the family relationship, then he ordained that that is the way the relationships are going to continue to be. And he says that because of that, that's the way it's going to be in the church as well. Secondly, Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became the transgressor. That's clear. Eve was the one who was talking to the serpent. Eve was the one who was, I guess this is a good word, flirting around with sin. And there when Satan was tempting her and he began to talk to her and say, you're not surely going to die? Come on. That she was the one that took the fruit, whatever it was, ate first, and then gave it to Adam. She was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, you might say, ladies, unfair. But we can't do that biblically because representation is something that is very important all throughout Scripture and very important to God. Adam represented all of humanity. So Eve did transgress and was deceived but Adam is the one having eaten that plunged all of humanity into sin and unrighteousness and if we don't have Adam as our representative women if you don't have Eve as your representative then how can you have Christ as your representative because he is the one who represents us for righteousness sake we don't deserve what his blessings are because he's the God man but he gives them to us by way of representation. Okay? So two reasons why he says, this is why a woman is not permitted to teach or exercise authority within the context of the church. I don't think this refers to every facet of life. I know there are some good Bible-believing Christians that say a woman should not have authority over a man in any capacity, in any way. I don't think that's... To me, that's not an accurate reading of what we're talking about here. The context is the church. He's talking about the church. So what he's saying specifically, just so we're crystal clear, is he's saying that a woman can't function in the role of pastor, elder, bishop, or not deacon, pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, whatever phrase we want to use, which we're going to look at next week, okay, at our merge service. We're going to look at the role of elders and what are elders in the context of the church. They're only men. Now, that's the only position that, is, that has that regulation on it in all of the New Testament. Just so you know, it's the only position that has that regulation on it in the New Testament. But here's the reason why. 
Because Adam was formed first and Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, because of that, Paul says a woman can't teach or exercise authority over a man in the office of elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, whatever phraseology we want to use there. Now, I hope you don't hear that meaning God doesn't use women. I really hope you don't hear that. Because we can go all throughout the New Testament and find many, many women that God uses. In fact, Christ himself was in many ways the great liberator of women from the, I'll use the word, patriarchal structure that they were under, under Judaism. Or in almost all of the Old Testament, almost all of that ancient world, women were viewed much much more inferiorly than they were after Christ came. Women were the first ones who were there at the tomb. Women were the one who stayed there when he was on the cross. There are many women who are sharing the God. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila's named first, or pardon me, Priscilla's named first in that exchange where she goes with her husband and corrects Apollos' misunderstanding of Scripture. In Philippians chapter 4, you have, I know I'm going to pronounce the names wrong, but Iodia and Syntyche, I think is how you pronounce them. And he says of those women that they need to agree with one another. They need to overcome their qualms against each other because they were co-laborers with the gospel, with Paul. That means they were out with him sharing and preaching the gospel. And on and on and on and on we can go. And there are plenty of places in the Bible where women are having all kinds of ministry. And we're going to come to places in 1 Timothy where we're going to see clear instruction for women on how they're to serve in the context of their church. But we're not there tonight. So come back. (laughs) Keep coming and hear this and listen. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. First thing, it should be really evident. This isn't justification by childbirth, right? You know, justification means saved, right? It's Paul's phrase that he uses throughout a lot of his writings to talk about salvation, You're right with God now. Justification. So this isn't that. Because we're justified by faith alone. So he's not using the word saved here in that technical sense. So how is she saved through childbearing? Well, I'll tell you what. I am going to give it the best shot. And I am not interested in debate. If you want to talk about this, sure. Because I don't frankly completely know myself. And from my reading, nobody's quite sure. I'm pretty sure what in the world Paul is specifically referring to here. So what I think he's getting at myself is two things. One, he just immediately brought up the stigma that comes from Eve being deceived. Right? That's what he literally just said in the last verse. Eve was deceived and became the transgressor. Yet, referring back to what he just said, she will be saved through childbearing. 
So I think because as a woman who is able to, I'm not able to have kids. Now, however much science crazily advances and wants to, you know, do whatever they do, I'm still never going to be able to have a kid myself birthing it. So a woman has a particular unique place within the context of a church. And they have a particular unique congregation that they're able to teach that I won't because I'm out working all the time. And that's children within the home. So I think that what he's get, a thing he's getting at here is that women who have children are saved from the stigma that Eve brought to them as they teach their congregation that they have within the context of the home. Does that make sense? Because it says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. He's going to later in 2 Timothy commend Timothy's mom and grandmother for teaching him the sacred scriptures from when he was a youth. And I think that that's a key into what Paul's getting at here. So, I personally think that's the most compelling answer myself. There are several other ones too, um, and I'm really not interested in going down a big, long, lengthy list of them because I found them to be generally unhelpful. So what I think he's getting at here is that she is saved from the stigma and she is given an opportunity to teach and have authority in a capacity that frankly I won't have in the context of the home. Yes, I have a position of authority in the home, but I have a different and unique role and responsibility there than the wife does. Now the whole thing wraps up in this. The whole point is what he said back in chapter 2 is that we may live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. Really, it makes sense, doesn't it, that that's what the church should be emblematic, right? When people see the church, walk into our church, we would want them to encounter a group of people that are continuing in faith and love and holiness and self-control, that are peaceful and quiet, living a quiet life, that are godly and dignified in every way, right? It just makes so much sense. And so while this passage here does have quite a bit in it that kind of grinds against our modern cultural sensibilities, it also makes a lot of sense. And while I know there is cultural baggage to overcome in understanding this and living it out and biblically following it, it behooves us to do that. And it behooves us to pray about these things and see, well, how can I, as a man, fulfill what he tells me to do back here in verse 8? And women, what can you do? How can you fulfill? What has the Lord spoken to you on here this, this evening? I'm perfectly confident that the Holy Spirit has laid something on your heart and on your mind. And if that comes up, <clears throat> talk to each other about it. Talk to me about it. We'd love to pray with you and to continue on in seeing how the Lord is going to grow our church in the way that he has ordained the church to grow. Lord, we love you and we thank you that even when we come across a difficult text like this, something that is um, hard sometimes to believe and to 
follow and to understand. We know, Lord, that you have not written it without purpose, but you've given us what we need in order to live lives that are holy and godly and dignified in every way. We pray, Lord, that you would lead and fill us with your spirit so that we might find our roles here within the context of our church and fill them with all luster and joy that we can possibly do. So we love you and we thank you and we pray that as you have given these instructions to the church long ago, that you would use them here in our church. Even though we're so far removed by time, we are not because we're united to them with your Holy Spirit and with sacred scripture. Thank you, Lord.